look, if you're wondering why the order of the meeting bears no resemblance to what's in the bulletin, it's, uh, it's because Wayne's been good enough to shuffle some things around because I need to travel to Sydney. So thank you for that. And if you're one of the churches looking at me on the big screen at the moment, I'm sorry I can't be there, and I hope that won't be distracting, because this morning is a uh, fantastic passage, and it would be a shame not to give it our full attention. So I'd like to ask God to help us to do that. Let's do it. Father God, thank you that you are generous beyond our imagination. And we'd like to ask that this morning you'd help us to really grasp how wide and long and high and deep truly your love is for us in Christ. Pray it in his name, for his glory. Amen. Uh, friends, have you ever had an offer too good to refuse? I'm not talking about the sort of offer that turns out to be too good to be true, you know, the sort that there's all these hidden catches and it just turns out to be a bit of a... No, no, I'm talking about a real offer. Ever had a genuine opportunity that is simply too good to turn down? Earlier on this year, my parents were in Canberra and through a range of circumstances, they met a journalist who worked at Parliament House. He had a very high-level security pass and... I guess because my mum and dad don't look like terrorists, he offered to take them on a behind-the-scenes tour of Parliament House through all these underground, high-security tunnels into all the camera rooms, the checkpoints, uh, past the Prime Minister's office, all the places that the public just never get close to. I reckon that would have been absolutely fascinating. I would put that in the category of way too good to refuse. But I'm sure if we chatted around the room, there'd be plenty of better stories than that, better opportunities that were just too good to turn down. Well, today in Jeremiah 18, 19 and 20, which is a section we're going to have a look at, what happens is that God is going to make Israel an offer too good to refuse. In these chapters, God's going to give Israel an extraordinary, an unbelievable offer. Mind you, what's really unbelievable about the offer is that it is still on offer to you this very day. But hey, before we get to us, let's have a look at Jeremiah, Israel, and what it is particularly that God is offering them here. Chapter 18, back to verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. Now last week, hopefully you remember, we noticed this little word formula, sentence formula, that Jeremiah frequently uses when he's going to introduce a new topic. Remember that? The little formula is that the word will come to Jeremiah, after which Jeremiah is told to do something, after which Jeremiah is told to say something. Now, that's the little formula that we just read in verses 1 and 2. Did you notice it? Verse 1, the word comes to Jeremiah. Verse 2 tells us that the thing he's got to do now is go and hang out at the potter's house. And thirdly, we're told that after he's done that, God's going to give him a message a message to proclaim to Israel. We're being alerted to the fact that we've reached a new section in the book. We're being introduced to a new theme. And this theme is going to revolve around two object lessons to do with, to do with pottery. That is, Jeremiah stands and watches the potter doing his thing at the pottery wheel, in that wheel where they spin the clay and shape it with their hands. God's going to say to Jeremiah, well, Stand and watch that for a few moments because there's a couple of object lessons that I'm going to give you from it, lessons that I want you to pass on to Israel. The first lesson revolves around what happens when a clay pot gets spoiled while it's being made. Verse 3. 
So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping with the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter shaped it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Jeremiah is watching at a potter's work and you've got the scene, he's working away at the wheel, but as he's working, the clay all starts to fall apart. It goes all out of shape. Now, if I was the potter, that would be a fairly expected thing to happen. But it's not so much the imperfection of the potter that is on view here. It's the imperfection of the clay. Notice in the verse that the clay is marred in his hand, not by his hands. In other words, the clay itself is not up for the project. It's just not strong enough. It doesn't have the right texture, the right water content, whatever it is the clay's got to have. The quality is just not there. And yet such is the mastery of this potter, such is the artistry of this potter, that he can shape it and fashion it into something else, shaping it as it seemed best to him, verse 4. That's a critical phrase, that one, as best to him. It's tapping into the idea that, it, that it's totally up to the potter as to what he's going to make out of this clay, the, the shape of the vase. It's totally up to him. It's all about the potter. It's all about his flair and his control and his brilliance and his skill and his creativity. Nothing need be spoilt in the hands of this potter. And the object lesson is, hey Israel, that's exactly the way it is between you and God. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand. O house of Israel, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I'll relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. But if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and doesn't obey me, then I'll reconsider the good I had intended for it. Now, friends, this is a big lesson. Here's something to fit into your head. God can do to nations what this potter does with clay. Such is the sovereignty and the power of God that he can mould entire nations into what seems best for him. And in particular, he can mould them into what seems best for him depending on the character of that nation. Because if God says to a nation that they're going to be blessed but then they go off the rails, God will inflict disaster on them instead he will remold the clay into what seems best for him and the reverse is true if he says he's going to destroy a nation but then the nation turns around and gets its act together uh, god will bring blessing in the same way that a potter remolds the clay this is a very interactive picture of god don't you reckon I mean, some people have a very fatalistic view of life, don't they? You know, no matter what you say, the, no matter what you do, it, it sort of makes no difference to life. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You can't make any difference to life. It, it, it's, all just, it's all just fate. That is not the picture you're getting here. God reacts to you. What you say, what you do, what you think... That affects how God will treat you. It is not case sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. God may well be going to treat you a certain way, but depending on how you react, behave, conduct yourselves, he may reconsider. 
And here in Jeremiah, it has particular relevance to, to Israel. Verse 11. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you, devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways. Each of you, reform your ways and your actions. Now, at this point, can you see the offer that God is putting on the table to Israel? Last week, we noticed that Israel are a nation under judgment. They've been treating God like dirt for years, and they are looking down the barrel of a disaster. Babylon is poised to sweep through from the north and crush them out of existence, and it is all judgment from God. And here at the potter's house, can you believe this? Here at the potter's house now comes the offer that if they would simply repent. And look, God is talking about genuine repentance here. Verse 11 talks of Uh, turning from evil ways, reforming their actions. We're not talking a word game here. God's not saying that Israel simply mouth the words, we repent, but then their life goes on as if nothing's ever changed. No, no, this is fair income repentance. But if Israel do it, if they repent, God will relent. And it's just like it's described in verses 7 and 8 that we've already read. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, well, that is certainly Israel at this point in history. But if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I'll relent. I won't inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Friends, this is an extraordinary offer. Think about what... Uh, we re- what we discovered about the way Israel have been treating God uh, last week. Think about the sheer offensiveness of the things that they have been doing. They have basically spent the last few hundred years giving God the finger. And yet now the offer comes in. Can you believe it? If you just repent, I'll relent. And God will be the potter who will reshape Israel, the spoiled clay, into a new and a most beautiful thing. Now that is an offer too good to refuse. Keep going the way you are, judgment. Repent, I'll relent. It's not a hard choice. Who who would not accept this offer? Well, sadly, a lot of us already know that, that, that Israel don't accept the offer. In fact, you've only got to read one verse past our reading to get a sense of that because nothing takes God by surprise. Look what he says in verse 12. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his own heart. And as you keep going through the chapter, sadly, that's what happens. In fact, things go from bad to worse. Uh, by verse 18, Israel have decided that they're not only going to turn down God's offer, they're going to start a smear campaign against Jeremiah. It begs belief that they would be that stupid. And so by the end of the chapter, what happens is basically Jeremiah is calling for their blood. By the end of the chapter, Jeremiah is basically saying, hey, God, I, I told them everything you said and all they want to do is hurt me now. So just let them have it. Bring it on. they got no one to blame but themselves. And God agrees. And so we reach the second object lesson, chapter 19 this time, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy 
a clay jar from a potter. Slightly different object lesson. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, near the entrance of the potsherd gate. And so they all go. We get to the punchline in verse 10, chapter 19, verse 10. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as the potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. Whereas the first object lesson revolved around a spoilt pot, this one revolves around a smashed pot. Because whereas the first lesson revolved around the workability of fresh clay, this lesson now revolves around the unworkability of finished clay. That once the clay's been made into whatever you've made it into, once it's been fired... Pottery's got no flex then, has it? You can't shape it anymore. It's hard and it's brittle. It can't be reshaped. It can only be shattered. So it will be with Israel, for she has made up her mind. She heard the offer, she refused the offer, and now she will be broken. The disaster that could have been averted is if she'd only repented, that that disaster is now inevitable because God has simply had enough. And from this point in the book, any real opportunity for Israel to repent again, it all but disappears because God has simply had enough. And just to get closure to the end of chapter 20, what follows is more than justifies the fact that that God's had enough. Because uh, after the first object lesson, just like uh, Israel hardened their heart and Jeremiah was given a hard time, exactly the same thing happens after this object lesson. Israel again hardened her her heart and they again give Jeremiah a hard time. They physically beat him up. They throw him in the stocks. And again, Jeremiah cries out in his distress because the poor guy is just trapped. He's passing on God's word. It only ever gets him into trouble. And yet he can't stop passing on God's word because he says, it's like a fire in my heart. I've got to warn them. Uh, He can't hold it in. He must prophesy. And so sitting in the stocks with a bleeding back, uh, Jeremiah basically wishes he'd never been born. And so by the end of chapter 20 in the book of Jeremiah, it is a very tragic scene. God's prophet in the stocks. God's offer, well, it's just lying screwed up on the floor. And Israel, incredibly, have walked away from an offer way too good to refuse. I have a mate who was playing a guitar in a guitar shop in Sydney once, and Tommy Emmanuel came over to him and offered him lessons and gave him his card to get in contact with him. Now, Tommy Emmanuel, if you don't know, is regarded by lots of people as one of the finest guitarists in the world. And yet my mate never got round to taking him up on the offer. And sometimes Phil reckons he just sits at home and he sort of daydreams a little bit about, I wonder how different life could have been. If I just accepted that offer, how different life could have been for Israel if they had just taken the offer? It's incredible that they would turn it down. Mind you, I'll tell you something even more incredible. What's even more incredible is that at this very moment, God still offers pretty well the exact same offer to you and I. 
Because, you see, the rest of the Bible testifies to the fact that it's not just Israel that's offended God by turning their backs on him. We're all guilty of that. None of us deserve, none of us treat God the way he deserves. Uh, We are all spoilt clay, as it were. But, you see, Israel's ingratitude is not enough to stop God's generosity. And so after they refused God's offer, the floodgates were open to all the nations, all of us, from every background to now receive this offer. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter explains it this way. I've put the verse there on uh, the outline for you to have a look at. It comes from Acts chapter 3. Peter's talking to a crowd of people in Jerusalem and he says this, Repent then and turn to God. Sound familiar? So your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's pretty much the same offer as the one that God's making Israel here. Repent. Turn your life around. Turn back to God so that refreshing may come from God. Refreshing and not judgment from God. Friends, again, it's an offer too good to refuse. In fact, this one even sounds better than the one to Israel because in that verse, Peter also talks about sins being wiped out altogether. Now that's, of course, a reference to how Jesus fits into all of this because Jesus, as always, fits into the very centre of the way God does things. Because without Jesus, repentance itself, if you think about it, would achieve nothing. I mean, turn back to God, turn away from evil, well, that won't undo any of the evil we've already done. Even if we do reorientate our life, turn it in God's directions, we're not perfect. We'll we'll stumble, we'll mess up, we'll still make mistakes. But in God's genius and generous plan, uh, Jesus comes so that sins could be wiped away. That's why he died on the cross, died in our place takes the punishment we should have received so that when we do repent, the effect it has is extraordinary. When we turn back to God, forgiveness can be ours. Sins can be wiped away. Refreshment can be ours. God's own spirit can be ours. A place in new heaven and new earth can be ours. We don't deserve any of it. But when we repent, it's granted us because of what Jesus achieves. And just like spoilt clay can be reshaped as seemed best to the potter, you and I, we can be remade. I'm not much of an art buff, I must admit, but one of the most extraordinary moments of my life truly was standing in front of Michelangelo's uh, sculpture of the David. It is... Absolutely extraordinary. It's, it's huge and it seriously looks like it could just step off the platform and walk around. It, it is mind-numbingly good. It, 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 it just captures life in a way that I've never seen any other work of art come close to. Michelangelo actually sculpted the David out of a piece of marble which had been worked on before but had been spoilt by another sculptor. The piece of marble was huge, but it was abandoned because no one knew what to do with it. It had been so blemished and scarred by all the chisel marks all over it. But it is said that Michelangelo could not take his eyes off it. 
Every day he would walk to where the marble was uh, hidden, tucked away behind the, the cathedral church in Florence. And there, every day he would touch it, run his hands over it, measure it, caress it. Eventually, he was successfully commissioned to work on it. Got the commission just ahead of Leonardo da Vinci. And for two years, he spent on the piece of marble. Ingeniously, actually using the mistakes of the previous sculptor to his own advantage. The hole, which had been wrongly bored right through the piece, right through the block, he used to become the hole between the legs of the David. In some places, the, the thing he had in mind, there was so little marble left that all he could do was very gently uh, stroke and smooth and polish. And he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked. And after two years, he produced one of the greatest masterpieces the world has ever seen from a spoilt piece of marble. Now, friends, that is God's offer to you and I. We are spoilt by sin. We are flawed by our many failings. And we just deserve to be abandoned. And yet in God's hands, we can be a masterpiece of grace. It's just a matter of doing what Israel didn't do. Accepting the offer. Repenting. So I need to ask, have you done that? I mean, I'm not asking, have you been coming to church? I'm not asking if you're Christians in your family. I'm asking, have you personally, consciously, just accepted the offer? Have you repented and turned your life around so that it's going in God's directions? Because if you haven't, don't you think it's time you did? Because this window of opportunity is open now, but it won't be open forever. There will come a time, just like there came a time with Israel, when God will say, enough is enough. Friends, if you've never accepted or acted on this offer from God, do it today. You do it by accepting and acting on the offer like any other offer. You thank God for it. You thank him for his mercy and his patience. You thank him that Jesus came and died on our place. And then you tell God that you just accept the offer. I want to be forgiven. I want to be refreshed. I want to be remade. And then ask him for the help to live as a remade person, a repentant person. Friends, it's an offer too good to refuse. I hope you're not refusing it. But look, my guess is that lots of us here have already accepted it. You're here and you know what it's like to be in God's grace and God's love. Uh, you know what it's like to be being remade into one of his children. Well, if that's the case, maybe the lesson you need to rehear is that this offer from God is not only too good to refuse. Don't you reckon it's too good to keep to yourself? And maybe there's some people in your life who you are the only one in the position to let them know about the offer so that they too could accept it. Because let's face it, you get a good deal down the street, you pick up a bargain down there, and we are never backwards in telling people about that one, are we? Why on earth would we be silent about this offer? It is way too good to keep to ourselves. 
because it is way too good to refuse. I'll pray. Father, we'd like to thank you for your amazing generosity to us. Thank you for the offer that when we repent, you refresh us, you remake us, you wipe away our sins, and you grant us your spirit. These are wonderful things, Father. Thank you. Thank you. And Father, we'd like to ask that we would not be secretive about the offer. Help us to so love those people in our lives that we would like them too to be refreshed and remade. Father, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the things that you make possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name and to his glory. Amen.